Now this year, um, as you may have seen during the slides, uh, we are beginning our Advent season this week, and uh, we'll start this week looking at the theme of hope and the prophecy of Jesus Christ all throughout the Bible. So if you turn with me, if you have your Bibles, you can. Just a couple minutes, we'll be in Luke chapter 2. And each week as we go along, we'll light one of the candles in the Advent wreath. I was going to say it worked fine this morning. There we go. And we'll have five weeks. Each week will be a different theme, focusing and helping us reflect on the coming of our Savior. Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was with him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Prophecy. All throughout the Old Testament, we see little signposts pointing to Christ, our Messiah. Prophecy at its most basic meaning is a simply a message from God. And that's what Simeon was looking for, a message. There was hope needed. We see Simeon, righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, an encouragement, comfort. But unknowingly that day at the temple, Simeon would be face to face with hope. He would receive his message from God. And so Simeon, we see, was a righteous and devout man. He sought justice and he feared God above all else. It's no coincidence that we see these two words together. What other place is there to look for hope and justice but God himself? And so surely God would provide. It may not be in that time that we want it to, but it will come. So we see Simeon was waiting. It's not a word that we enjoy hearing or talking about. In the fast-paced world that we live in, everything at our fingertips, we want everything here and now. When we look at this word waiting in the Hebrew, there's two words. The first is simply to wait, just as you would anything. Right? You pop something in the microwave, 10 seconds, you have to wait. You can't do anything else. 
The second term, which the Greek word in Luke 2 shares its likeness, is this idea of there being tension and anticipation. When we are sick, we eagerly await the hour we don't feel the way we do. When we sit in traffic, we anticipate the movement of cars to happen to get to our destination. Right. I recently experienced this, heading to Philadelphia to visit family. My five-and-a-half-hour trip turned into ten. All right. Needless to say, there was some tension. All right. Simeon was waiting. We read that he was looking for encouragement. He was looking for comfort. The nation of Israel was lost and hurting. Simeon knew God's promises. He had heard the prophecies, the promise of the one who would come to right all that was wrong, one who would redeem Israel from its sins. And I'm sure Simeon had been waiting for a long time, way longer than my 10 hours in a car. Simeon had been waiting for years. But notice this about Simeon and his waiting. Where did he look? It says that it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would see the Messiah before his death. Simeon was moved by the Spirit to go to the temple courts. Right? He heard God's voice. Not long ago, Joe Marks challenged us in thinking about who are we listening to. It played a huge part in Simeon's waiting. He was communicating with the Father frequently. He had to. How else would he know where to go and what to do? I could imagine Simeon going to the temple expecting to hear a word from the priest or possibly a divine vision of who the Messiah would be. Instead, Simeon received way more. That day, he held the Messiah in his hands. It was Christ. The beautiful thing about this passage is that Simeon recognized Christ as the answer. It was exactly what he was hoping for. The comfort he needed. The waiting was over. We see in verse 29 through 32, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The tension was over. God delivered on what he had promised, and with it came peace and salvation. And we see Simeon was moved to worship. And so there may be something in your life right now that you're waiting for. You're in the waiting, in the in-between. You're not sure where to go or what to do. Let me encourage you to speak to the Father. Let me encourage you to spend time at his feet. So often we overlook what we already have. Why? Because our hearts and our minds are not tuned to his voice properly. Our eyes are not focused on what's in front of us. We're looking everywhere else around us except right in front of us. Jesus is our living hope. And it doesn't end at the birth of Christ because we eagerly anticipate his coming again where we will be rescued from this broken world 
and made whole in his presence. And so this Advent season, let's continue to look to Christ, our hope. Let's continue to tune our ears to his voice so we can know his leading. Waiting isn't so difficult when our hope is in the one who has brought us peace and is more capable than ourselves to rescue us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have to come together and worship you. Father, some of us, if not all of us, are waiting, eagerly anticipating. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and hear you clearly. Father, help us to be focused Lord, on what your word says. Lord, to believe, Lord, that you're, that our hope has already come. It's in Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for sending your son. Lord, to reconcile us back to you. Father, this time we ask that you just keep us focused on your word. Help us to be attentive to the words that you've given Bob this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Thanks, Jose. I love that story. I love that he, I mean, we've been going through a little bit of a baby boom here at our, uh, at our church. We have a lot of children that have been born, and it's kind of fun to see parents, you know, they show you their new baby, and it's just cute and fun. And, but I've never had one that I said, okay, I'll go home now. Take me home, Father. You can kill me. That kid's so cute, my life's over. Never happened, never happened. Well, one of my, I'm not gonna say which one, one of my kids, I almost felt that way, but it amazes me that he saw, he saw what God had promised, and he says, man, you're a faithful God. I'm, I'm good, I am good, and uh, that's a great thing. We, um, we're in the series on the book of Hebrews, and, and uh, today we're gonna do, you know, we're gonna do a rabbit trail, um, I do these things, and I started thinking about this, and I don't like the idea that it's called a rabbit trail. I don't know. I think of more like a lion's trail, maybe would be a better way of saying it. I don't know. If I'm the one on the trail, I don't want to be the rabbit. But we've been talking in the book of Hebrews, and it's been coming up some about this, uh, this idea of repentance, and, and in chapter 6, he hit this really hard, and, uh, and it, was a, it was a strong warning. And so I want to talk about repentance. I want to talk about um, dealing with a wandering heart. Because here's the thing, so many times we know, and like oftentimes we know the little glib, the, the idea of repentance means turning around and going in a different direction, and it does mean that. But it means much more than that. And if somebody asked us exactly what it meant, we might have trouble kind of breaking it down and describing it. And so we're going to look at a passage uh, from the book of 2 Corinthians Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles or on your phone if you want, or you can just listen. I'm going to read it. He said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation 
and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done at every point. You have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So Paul's writing his second letter to Corinth, to the people who lived there. And in his first letter, if you're familiar with it at all, he got in their face a little bit, not a little bit, he got in their face a lot. And he, he spoke to them about the struggles they were having and the things that they were dealing with. Now, I love sometimes just to put up, a, it, this doesn't necessarily enhance the message, but I want you to see something about Corinth. All right, Corinth is in what we would call Greece now. And it's right down, if you see it at the bottom where it says Achaia, there's a little spit of land and then you hit the city of Corinth. And what made Corinth so powerful in those days and so rich in those days is if you can see it, you can come at Corinth from two directions and find adequate places to land your boat and unload, places to dock, which were not easy to do in those days. And so with Corinth, they had access to trade routes from two directions. And then from Corinth, it could go up into Europe or Stuff would come from Europe and go throughout the, the Mediterranean Sea. So Corinth was a very, it was, it was placed perfectly to be a harbor and a seaport that, that um, made them rich. And part of this, what happened was Corinth became a place that was known, was known for being a crazy place. It was known. I mean, the closest thing that we would have to Corinth maybe is, is Las Vegas or something like that. You know, whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And so this was the first sign you would see when you came to Corinth, you know. Work, welcome to fabulous Sin City Corinth. It was known for this, not just among Christians. It was known for this. This, this is what Corinth was all about. So what in the first book, what did he get in their face about? Well, they had factions going on. They had divisions going on. They had egos that were out of control. They had injustice that they were involved in. They had sexual sin that was, that was in, in one point, you know, he said, not even, not even the pagans are doing this. And what's interesting in that section when he talks about that is that he is not just talking about that particular sin. What he's talking about is the church accepted it. The church said it's business as usual. It's okay. We don't have to deal with this person and what they're doing because, you know, anything goes here and the church was starting to slide into that. And Paul's fear was that the church had just gotten so corrupted. So he wrote this letter and he blasted them. He said, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And at one point he says, you accept this? Not even Pagans accept this. What is wrong with you? And so he writes this pretty harsh in some places letter. And, and he is urging them to repent. And so I want to give us some practical ideas on repentance. I love, there's a hymn, and I love one line of it because it so expresses us and me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead, leave the God I love. That's, that's where repentance needs to come in. And so this is important. So I want you to see the key to growth is repentance. And going back to what he wrote, just the first two, the first two uh, verses, he said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. 
Though I did regret it, like at that time, I was a little worried about that. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way. So the key to growth is repentance. The key to growing is repenting. You know, when Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the, on the Wittenberg church door, and I know most of you memorized them in grammar school, but one of the things he said about that is, all, all of life is repentance. He said, that's what life is about for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And I think it can be very um, misunderstood in our culture today, in the church culture today, because what the, what the average, average people oftentimes think about repentance is you repent for the bad stuff, the really bad stuff that you do, the major things. But Luther is saying, and I think the scripture is saying, we should be growing, and it's a daily cycle of repentance in our lives. You know, we, we, we tend to keep repentance for the bad times. People will say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing fairly well in my walk. Yeah, I messed up really bad a few days back. I repented of that. And uh, then there was this time a few months ago where I really blew that. I know I needed to confess it. But they make it look like this is something that happens just occasionally in their life. And if you understand the gospel that Jesus Christ has covered your sins, if you understand that you're accepted on the basis of what he has done, then you understand more and more what the gospel is saying. You begin to understand more and more that your sin is ever present in your life and you regret it more deeply. And what is interesting is, is that when you begin to get a handle on that, this releases joy in your life. This releases this, this, this sense of being loved and of loving others. But if you don't rest on the gospel, you don't rest on that understanding of, look, I know I'm a sinner, but my sins are covered. If you don't rest on that understanding, uh, maybe you're a really moral person. Maybe you're a moral religious person. Maybe you're a good person. Maybe you're an atheist. Maybe, maybe you're a hardened criminal. But if you don't rest your life on the gospel, then all of those people, that type of person, they're in the same boat, so to speak, because you're resting your life on your power and on your ability to change you. And then what happens when you see your sin in your life or you see weakness in your life, it leads to despair because you begin to realize, I can't do this. There's no way. Can I tell you something? As a Christian, if you're a Christian and you realize at a certain point in your life, oh, oftentimes over and over again, I can't do this. I can't live the Christian life. I can't do it. That's the greatest place to be. Because you don't do it, God does it through you. You can't do it on your own. There's just no way. There's just no way. But if you don't believe in that, then what you do is you keep thinking, oh, okay, it's on me. I've got to do it. And that can lead to more and more regret and despair because you realize I'm a failure at this. I'm a failure at this. See, repentance in light of the gospel is incredibly reassuring and joyful. And it leads to gratitude for what God has done because I realize he's covered it. It's taken care of. I don't have to wallow in this. I confess it to him and I move on. And that's the engine that brings growth in our lives. Not getting better at 
things and resisting sin or whatever, but getting better at bringing everything to the cross, continually going to the cross. You know, we sang this morning about Jesus. He's at the foot of the cross and his arms are wide open. I love that imagery because he's at the foot of the cross where he died for our sins, where this great, you know, sacrament, this great, um, what he did self for himself, he did for us, I mean. <laughs> and, and he did that, and he's now at the foot of that cross with his arms open wide. Come to me. Come to me. I give you forgiveness. I give you life the way it's supposed to be lived. So as we get better at bringing everything to the cross, our focus is on him and on the cross and what he did. Instead of our focus just being on ourselves and then beating ourselves up. See, if your awareness of your sinfulness leads you to despair, then you have to ask yourself, if you despair, you have to ask yourself, on what basis do I believe God loves me? What am I trusting here that God will love me? Is it my efforts? Is it my moral excellence? Is it living up to some standards? You know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he told them, this is wrong, and you need to get back to Jesus. He didn't say make a bunch of self-help groups Big egos over here, and then there'd be nobody there, you know. Nobody would admit that. Or the, the people who are liars, liars over here. We don't, he said, no, go get back to Jesus. Remember this. So repentance is identifying. It's, it's removing idols of the heart. Many people think of it as simply stopping external behavioral sins, but really it's this process, and, and, and we're, the next point is this. We have to understand the key to repentance is identifying the core issues. Why do I do that? Why do I do that? And, and in the second part of verse 9, he said, so, so you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we're not harmed in any way by us. He says, you became sorrowful. You began to experience this, this, this idea of repentance. They realized what their problems were. They realized what the deep issues were, the core issues. Sometimes when you do something, it's really good to think, why did I say that? What prompted me to feel that that was the and a, a good response. Why do I feel that way? Someone, you know, you, you might get criticized by someone and feel insulted. Why do I feel insulted? What is it? Because I, is it because my reputation? Is it because I, I you know, you, you start to think that through and then you begin to realize, so what am I basing self-worth on? They realized what their, their problems were. And that leads to the right realization because the core issue is idols. So I see sometimes in my life, I sin. What do I do? I confess it to God. That was wrong. I own up before God. But the next step is, why did I feel the need to do that? Is there an idol behind that sin? Is there an, is there an idol? An idol is something that keeps, it's something you get your identity from. I go back to this sometimes because I love this. It's a perfect illustration of, of in the first Rocky movie, <clears throat> he admits he's not planning on winning. He says, I just need to go to the distance. If I go the distance, they prove that I'm not a bum. 
And that's just, I feel there's so much wrapped in that. When you watch that movie, you see that he's beginning to realize, you know, he's, he's starting to work with the mob. He's going around and breaking fingers and breaking arms of people who won't pay debts and stuff like that. And he's going, this is, this is, there's something better than this. And he gets his chance to fight the champion. He goes, I just want to survive 12 rounds and prove that I'm not a bum. I'm not a bum. And we can all struggle with this. We can struggle with, oh, man, if I could just get that or if I could accomplish this, I would prove something to people. I'd be happy. I'd be content. We all have those somethings in our lives. I, I, know, I, know, some, I know some people in big churches. I know, boy, this just shows the ugliness in me. You ready for this? I know some people that have big churches. They're pastors there. And I listen to them sometimes. And I got to be honest. I go, I think I'm better than they are. Man, come on, dude. You call that a sermon? That's a cure for insomnia. What are those people there for? You know, I, you know okay, I told you, this is, this is me. And, and you know what? Not to, it's all pastors do that. I should say that. Yeah, I'm trying to get out of this right now. I'm trying to bail. I'm trying to, oh, Bob, you admitted a little too much. All, I mean, all pastors do that. And I know every parent here is going, so if all pastors jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? Yeah, okay, I know, I know. I, I just, I think I'm better than they are. I just do. And, and we all do it. Everybody here. You think, you think that at some point in your life, this is so common. Some point in your life, things had broken in a little better way. You'd be really good at something. I get this all the time from guys that played sports in high school. You know, if I'd have just, you know, a little, and a little bit better coaching, I could have played college ball. Maybe, maybe the NFL. I think I could have had a shot. I'm just like, you're short. <laughs> that's, a, that's one, you know. You're not going to be in the NBA, okay? You know, it's just, it, we're full, of, we have these ideas. If something had gone a little different, I would be something. I would be something. And then this is where idols start creeping in, you know? And it's easy to have idols in so many ways. It might be a relationship. It might be financial. It might be some achievement, some sort of status. And an idol is simply making something else besides Jesus Christ the key to your life making something else important above Jesus. And you can usually tell when they, what they are because sometimes God sends a problem into your life and you can't get what you want. And that shows you, is this an idol or not? Is this an idol or not? Oh, I'm just full of revealing things. So one time in my life, <laughs> it just occurred to me, and I shared this, I shared this. One time in my life, I just wanted this car. I wanted this car. And I went and talked to my wife, and she said, if you believe God wants you to have this car, get it. I hate it when she says that, right? Why are you putting that on God? And, and I wanted it, and I talked to people, and I had a friend who was a mechanic, and he said, don't get it. And I said, you're not my mechanic anymore. I'll find a new one. Until I found a mechanic that said, oh, yeah, that car's reliable. <laughs> right? 
And so my wife had had surgery, and I'm sit, was sitting there comforting her in her surgery and saying, hey, you, I think maybe I, you know, what about that car? And she just said, just get it. Just get it. And it was a money pit. God just slapped me 10 times with that car because I, I wanted it. I wanted it. And see, that it showed me. When I couldn't get it at first, it shows me something. It showed, and I wasn't, this was like 50 years ago. I wasn't smart enough to understand. God was revealing to me that this is an idol because I wanted it so badly. I wanted it so badly. And so you can usually tell what your idols are because if God sends a problem and you just come undone over it, you begin to see what's most important in your life. Now, that's the psychological aspect of our... Theologically, what would we say? We would say these are things that, are, that, that you are, are making your righteousness. You, these are things that you are saying make you something, something better instead of God. Paul talks about this. Let me just read this passage from Philippians 3. He says, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, oh, you guys want to compare resumes? Is that what we're talking about? He goes, well, here we go. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the absolutely right day, of the people of Israel, the people of God, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church because they were the bad guys. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. He says, here's the list of all the things that Jews say are the greatest things that make a person the best kind of person. All the right rules, all the right this, all the right that, right family, right education, boom, 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 on down the line. And he says, and they were a loss when it came to Christ. He's saying, they kept me from him. All my great accomplishments kept me from Jesus. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, man, all this stuff we think is important is not that important. Now, this is a wake-up call for us because what does our culture, what does our world think is important? They give us a lot of things that, that they think is important. And he's saying, those things aren't that important. Those things will pull, hold you back. They'll pull you down. He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And this word for rubbish is a really ugh, word. So he lists his righteousness. He, he lists his pedigree. He lists his family background. He lists his career accomplishments, his intellectual attainments. And he said, they used to be my honor, my glory, my dignity. But now they're worthless to me. So when we become Christians, listen, I know this old man is still around. And I know, I know this. I know Jesus is my righteousness. He's my glory. He's all I need. I have this old man that every once in a while whispers in my ear, are you kidding yeah, yeah, great spiritual news. But does it work in the real world? I have a friend um, years ago, years ago, talking to him. He's struggling with relationships, struggling, couldn't get a date. He was awkward around people. And I, he would talk to me about it. We'd meet, he'd talk to me about it. And I would gently remind him, 
man, in Christ, you are completely loved. We have this incredible future. We have blessings now. He gives us guidance. He's adopted us into his, into his family. We have these incredible things. And he said, yeah, but how good is that if you're not popular? And then he learned why you never say that to a pastor. But that is us, isn't it? We all have things we struggle with, and we have this temptation. If I don't get this, it's like I'm a bum. Or it's like I have to have this. And we see that was what, something we think is our righteousness. And part of us is still operating on the old basis. So the idea is to identify these things and deal with them biblically examine ourselves to stop and just say, what do I think is so important about this? You know, whether it's what I do with my mind, my imagination, what I do with my money, what am I really trusting in my life? Do I have uncontrollable emotions? Are there signs of this? Signs like anxiety, anger, depression? And looking at yourself and stopping and taking stock is a big part of repentance. Because we have this inner desire sometimes to get glory and to make our own, our own righteousness, and we can still operate that way as Christians. You know, you still see this. You see this person who is a terrible controller when they, uh, when they weren't a Christian, and then they become a Christian, and suddenly they love to study the Bible, but then they love to argue about it and prove how wrong everyone is, and they just transferred that controlling into another venue. Right? They just transport, and they don't stop and go, why am I this way? Why am I this way? Why do I love to argue? And, and I see this all the time. People who use biblical thoughts, ideas, and concepts as weapons to hurt others. It's a horrible thing. And some people who were insufferable before they were Christians, and now that they're Christians, they're still insufferable because they haven't gotten the message down through to their heart. We all have a flesh that wants to make its own righteousness, make, it, make its own glory. And the, and the way we grow is we recognize it. We see it in our life, and we repent of it every day. When you see pride or selfishness or gossip or being defensive, You've got to repent of that every day because it can crop up every day. And you may be, you may be going, ah, I'm not so sure about this, Bob. Okay, just try this. A little test this week. Don't gossip about somebody. Don't say something bad, even kind of obliquely, about anyone else, even if it's true this week. Don't defend yourself this week. Don't brag this week. Now watch and see how hard that is to do. Try that. And you will be astounded how much it comes up in your life because suddenly you're thinking and you're aware of it instead of just cruising along and not. Or even do this. Do something for someone and don't let them know that you did it. If you're married, do something, do something for your partner and don't let them know. You will be astounded at how hard that is. I hope you're astounded at how hard that is because it's hard for me. Occasionally, I'll do something in the house that wasn't planned or expected, and my wife gets home, and I'm just waiting for her to notice it. Just waiting. Paint a wall, and I end up going over and standing by the wall. How was your day, dear? Do I glow? 
you know, you just, you can't believe how much you want, want someone to know and, and acknowledge it. So how do we get rid of, how do we deal with that? Okay, so how do we repent? Let's get practical here. How do we repent? He says in verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that it leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Oh, so now he's saying there's, get this, there's two kinds of sorrow going on here. Two kinds of like, oh, I'm so sorry I did. Two kinds of this. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You catch your kid doing something wrong and they are so sorry because you caught them. They're not necessarily that sorry they did it or they're only that sorry they did it because they got caught. All right, so there's two kinds of sorrows. So don't be discouraged when you begin to realize, if you start to look at yourself, how bad things can be. This is one of those things where it's kind of like learning the enemy's movements. You may lose a battle on a given day, but you've got a much better chance of winning the war. So maybe, maybe you begin to dis- discern what you're struggling with. Maybe you begin to say, maybe I'm a little bit of a controller. Maybe I'm too sensitive. You know, I get hurt too easily. Maybe I'm seeing now how my pride is shaped in my life. Maybe it's like always wanting to be right, always wanting to have the last word, always be willing to dominate people. One of my favorite stories is, uh, um, he's with the Lord now, but Dallas Willard was a psychologist in, in California, just just. Um, Incredible man, incredible in his job, but also incredible as a human being. And one day he was teaching a class, and one of his fellow teachers was sitting in where you, know, where you get observed, and then they, they talk with you, critique you a little bit afterwards or whatever. And he's observing this class. And so he has his class, and, and it's a lot of younger students. And one student gets up and says, you know what, Dr. Willard, you're wrong on this. I don't think you've really thought this through. And here he is talking to this famous psychologist, you know, telling you, you haven't really thought this. And, and, and he, he kind of is a little bit rude to him. And he sits down. And, and Dallas Willard says, well, on that point, I think class is done. You guys remember your assignments next week? And class dismissed. And the other professor came up to him, and he was furious. He says, what are you doing? That, that kid was wrong. He was wrong, not you. And he insulted you. How can you let that happen? And he looked at him and he said, I'm practicing the art of not having the last word. What? What? Could you do that? Could I do that? No. Okay, just being honest. All right, so, so, so now you, when you begin to see, oh, I, this is important to me, then you begin to see it in your life. Or maybe you go, well, I don't have that problem. Maybe I, I don't say very much. I don't say anything to anyone. I don't want to offend anybody. You see, what you're doing then is you're saving yourself hurt by saying nothing. It's all about you. It's still a form of pride. It's still a form of self-centeredness. And I want to say the right thing because it might offend somebody. Well, you know what? Maybe you're too worried about what they think about you. And I don't want to make that a blanket thing because I know every situation is different. But we've got to think about these things. When you see how that works in your life, it begins to not ambush you so much. So if someone says, I see all my bad motives, I'm really frustrated about that, I would say, hey, you know what? This is a good thing. You're moving in the right direction. The battle is engaged. And that's a good thing. Because the most important part is that you wake up to these. We all have these things. The question is, do you know what you struggle with? Have you figured that out? This is very important for us. 
Because when you realize there's a battle, now you can start to win. If you don't know the battle's going on, you're just getting your butt kicked all over the place. And that's a sign of life, knowing. The sign that God is working in you when you begin to know. So, you know, that's, don't, don't be discouraged. The second one is godly sorrow. That's the second thing I'm thinking. Godly sorrow for sin is important, not worldly sorrow. So understand how you feel in these situations. See it for what it is. If you say my feelings get hurt too easily, maybe it's because you're bitter. See, it feels much better to say, oh, my feelings get hurt, than say, I'm a bitter person. That's harder to admit, right? And, and it's just, I'm concerned about this deeply. Are you really saying that you're anxious about it and it's eating you alive? Then, then maybe there's trust issues involved here. Not in all situations, but we need to think this through. Call it what it is. And godly sorrow is, is different. Worldly sorrow is this. It's the idea of thinking, what is the danger in it to me? How has it messed up my life? Am I going to get punishment for this? But that's not repentance. That's self-pity. It's different. Self-pity is thinking, what a mess I've gotten myself into. Self-pity focuses on the consequences of sin. What a wreck I am. God's going to get me for this one. My parents will get me for this one. My boss will get me for this one. So it often comes out as, Lord, I'm so sorry for this. Please get it out of my life so I don't feel this feel this difficulty. And what's going on there? I hate the consequences of sin, but I haven't really learned to hate the sin. Or you hate yourself for being so stupid. And that's more self-pity. Real repentance, godly sorrow, looks at it in terms of how it affects God. I try to do this. I try to think. Sometimes I mess up and I go, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I just added one more thing for you to die for me for. I try to focus it in terms of God rather than just, just in terms of myself. To be able to go to him, godly sorrow, says, what does it cost him? How does he feel about it? And what are we doing? We're unmasking the sin and going to the cross with it. That's so important. So we see that the sin is not more important than God. God is more important than the sin. And he died, me to, he died to free me of this. And it does make me feel bad, but not a, not a pathological hatred of, hatred of me. I understand he loves me in spite of this. And then, and we'll get to this in Hebrews. He's going to bring this up. And then the greatest thing, I confess it to him, and he takes that sin, and he places it in a place where it will never be remembered again. It's gone. Now, if you think about that, that is incredibly freeing. The sin is gone. Now, and I, I know because always, there's always somebody who's smarty and comes up and says, so it's just gone. Not the consequences. You know, like if you stole something from someone, there's still consequences. But God says, I can, I can you know, make this right. You're for, let's go. Let's move on. And so it's an incredible thought that these sins are put away. We go to the cross. We see Jesus. He's a suffering Messiah, but he suffers for love. And we have to remind ourselves. 
You know, in one of the Psalms, it says, you are my hiding place. You always fill my life with songs of deliverance. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. It reminds me of the things that I hide in, the things that I hide from, and that hiding is God, in God is where I find safety, where I find peace. And so I say to myself sometimes, I try to do this, okay? I try to do this. I try to say to myself, Bob, this is not, this is not worth Jesus to you. This is not more important than Jesus. And so I confess it and drop it and put it to death. Let me give you quickly the last idea. Repentance yields fruit. And this is that, that verse, verse 11, see what godly sorrow has produced in you, okay? He's saying, you, you, I got in your face and, and, and I gave you a swift kick in the rear in 1 Corinthians and now I want to tell you something. Look what is produced. Look what is produced in your life. They've responded, and they've responded biblically in their lives. He says, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Earnestness is this idea of understanding the serious of the matter and not taking it lightly. He says, I wrote 1 Corinthians to you, and you guys went, whoa, this, yes. Paul's right. He said, you responded with earnestness. You responded with eagerness to clear yourselves. You worked hard to make it right. And what does that show? Paul, he says, it shows me something. It shows me you're living for Jesus. You are in the midst of all this mess. You're not apathetic and you're not uncaring. He says, indignation. This is that idea of anger at something was wrong. There was this scandal and they permitted it. And he says, you should be upset. You should, you should have indignation for righteousness' sake. He said there was alarm. And so they did. That was the thing. They were accepting it, and all of a sudden they said, no, this is wrong. And they took steps. He says, alarm. That's a word, that's a word for fear, the idea that you're afraid of the sin and what the sin might do and the harm that is done. And it's not just focusing on what it might do to me. You know, I, I, I remember one time I was speaking at, uh, um, over at CNU to uh, one of the student groups there. And um, this student, this young lady got up and she introduced me and she said, you know, Pastor Bob, blah, 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 all the nice things. And she said, he uses car illustrations a lot when he talks about struggling with things or getting frustrated or whatever. He talks about being in his car. And she said, and you know, the other day I was driving right by uh, Harris Teeter and this car cut me off and then turned hard into Harris Teeter. And, uh, and she said, I honked. And I looked over and she said, oh, it was Pastor Bob. <laughs> and so, you know, I got up and said, that's a bold-faced lie. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. No. I got up and said, oh, that's funny. Thank you. Blah, blah. And then I started, and, then, and, and later I was sitting and I said, God, I have to remember that things I do don't just affect me. They affect people. They affect my family. Oh, the worst thing that I want to do is to hurt my family, my wife, my kids, my grandkids. You know, the things we, and so it's not thinking in terms of what it does to me, thinking in terms of what it does to people, people. And people 
that I may have never met in my life, in my life. I didn't know who that girl was, and I don't remember, but I don't doubt the veracity. <laughs> but it, I had an opportunity there to make a negative impression, and ultimately, it hurt, you know, in other people's lives. And so, I want you to see here where he says this alarm. It's this idea. They suddenly realized with this especially, and it was a man who was living, and it says he's living with his wife's, no, living with his father's wife. So they don't know if that awkward means like maybe his stepmother, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's this terrible situation. And they were, he was in the church and it was accepted. Nobody went like, is this a good idea? Right? Maybe someone did. They never said anything. And, and so, you know, he, he's telling them, he's saying, look, I want you to understand something. This affects the cause of Christ. You're just not hurting yourself. Think of it this way. What does it do to Jesus and to his name? And I try to think of that. So longing is the next one the longing, and they wanted to see Paul. And he says, I'm, I'm, I, I see that you have this longing to see me, you know, that, that if, if they were angry or mad at him, they wouldn't have this longing. And he was so thrilled that they had, they had reacted in the right way. And then this concern, they had this concern, which is a, a word for passionate desire, a passionate desire to set things right. And then readiness to see justice done wanting to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing, and doing the right thing, especially in a church setting, making sure they're above reproach. And then at the end of verse 11, he, he, what he's saying there, yeah, there it is. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. He's saying, look, you have godly sorrow. I see this. You're repenting. This is going, you're not counting, uh, you know, you're, you're not continuing in your sin. You're not condoning sin. You've handled this rightly. I'm so pleased to see that in you. I'm so pleased. Because ultimately, Paul loves them. You know, it's a funny thing. I, in a church, when you're a pastor, you start to love people that you would have never met, even if they, you know, apart from the church, because there's just no way they'd be in your life as a human being. And, and sometimes, you know, I go on vacation or I do a wedding that's out of town or whatever, and I miss church on a Sunday morning. And it strikes me how much I miss you guys, all of you. It's a crazy thing. It's, I mean, I think it's something God does because I, I don't know you that well. But for many, just, man. And I can see how Paul is going I love these people. I started this church. And then I get this news of what's going on there. They've gone crazy. They are dealing with so many issues. And he says, I had to, like a parent, I had to come at them and say, look, stop it. And get in their face. And, and they said, yes, you're right, Paul. And he goes, oh, my heart is bursting with this love for you, with this love for you. And so, we leave here. We're in this time where we talk about Thanksgiving. We're moving into this time where we're talking about the Lord and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
which is a great time to actually put Thanksgiving to work and serve others. And this, what we're gonna be doing with this Advent calendar, you go to our website, you can find it. It's just, there's all these ways to serve others, to put others first. Um, and we don't expect you to do every one of them, but we'd love to have you get involved in them, you know, whether it's the port thing and just you know, working with the homeless and giving them a safe place for a night, whatever it is. This is a great time to begin to think about these things. And I was thinking about applying this to ourselves and beginning to understand, to kind of wake up to the things that bother us so much in our lives that so, so many of the time we can go years and years and years without ever stopping to think, why does this bother me? What's the spiritual issue that is behind this? And how does Jesus want me to handle it? I encourage you to do that, to look for opportunities to serve others and look for opportunities to see where am I struggling and how does Jesus want to bring? Because ultimately, this is the key. He wants to bring peace. He wants to bring joy. He wants to bring contentment into your life. And there are times where we go through hard times and that stuff doesn't seem very much around us. And then there are times where he, you know, things work and God comes and, but he wants that for you. And he doesn't want us to be caught up trying to live out values that this world says is important, but God says they don't make much difference. Because I'd hate to spend my life doing things that don't make a difference. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your time. (laughs) God, we thank you for this time and your time. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you meet us in ways that we never expect. You love us in ways that we have never earned. You work on us through your Holy Spirit to bring changes into our lives that we cannot do. And so, Lord, we pray that we would help, that you would help us to do that, help us to live these things. God, help us to begin to look at our lives and examine why we do what we do, what's behind it, what are the triggers that make these things, you know, become so important to us. And, Lord, that we'd bring them to you. And in godly sorrow, we would repent not because we've been caught, but simply because we have a Savior who promises promise to, promises to us that he takes away sin and shame in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.